Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So welcome everybody once again to Macklin's Take. And we are still in New York City. We're recording a few of these podcasts whilst we're over for Anthony Joshua against Andy Ruiz. So by the time you listen to this one, that fight will have been and gone. So we're not going to discuss it in any particular detail or we're going to tie ourselves in knots so this will be a much more kind of issue topic based podcast but that's, that's generally how we do it anyway and you find us in the TikTok diner just across the street from Madison Square Garden in Mustang Harry's yesterday change of location today and this was a recommendation of our esteemed guest this afternoon Mr Thomas Hauser I think it's fair to say a legendary fight scribe and author Thomas great to see you and thanks for thanks for giving us your time today I guess first things first, when did you first go to Madison Square Garden? This, this is your city, this is your town, it's kind of when, your venue. When I was a kid, I used to come to Madison Square Garden for basketball and hockey games. And back then, the garden was not located where it is today. It was on 8th Avenue between 49th and 50th Streets. And that actually was the third incarnation of Madison Square Garden. This is the fourth. The original Madison Square Garden was south of here in Madison Square, which is where the name Madison Square Garden came from. And so what was the first fight that you came to the garden to watch? The first fight I ever went to was at the third garden on 8th Avenue. Floyd Patterson fought George Shavalo. My uncle took me, and it was exciting. I was more of a baseball fan in those days. Baseball and football and basketball were my primary sports, but I could understand the excitement of it. And those were when you had the Friday night fights on television. I used to watch boxing there, and I was a casual fan. It became much more serious later on. Floyd Patterson was always a character who really kind of fascinated me when I got into boxing history. From, from Bedford-Stuyvesant, where a lot of good fighters have been from, from down the years, tough place, very kind of complex, insecure guy. We know the stories about him leaving venues in disguise after defeats to Sonny Liston and, and, and Ingemar Johansson. And he's a good example, really, of the kinds of different sorts of personalities that boxing, that boxing throws up. Is, is that one of the things that attracted you to the sport in the first place? Well, boxing has always had characters. I've said many times that some of the best people I've ever met in my life are in boxing. Many of the worst people I've ever met in my life are in boxing. But it is never boring. And that's particularly true of the fighters. Uh, fighters can be some of the smartest, you know, most wonderful, you know, interesting people in the world. You also have to be a little nuts to be a fighter. Uh, I remember Matthew telling me, I asked Matthew... Uh, why he became a fighter and uh, I think what you said to me Matthew was uh, well I was stupid and by the time I got smart I was hooked that's so pretty much it it's, uh, it's, uh, but it, it, it's an amazing sport uh, you, know, you, you could take anybody who ever lived 
at any point in time and put him or her down at ringside for a fight, and they would know exactly what was happening. They would understand it. That's not true of most sports, but it is true of boxing. That's it. I think uh, no matter what happens, everyone, every man, woman alive can uh, understand a fight is a fight. You can see who's winning and you can see who's losing, you know, more or less without getting technical or into the skills of boxing. But generally, one man fighting another one, you get the feeling. You can see who's kind of having the upper hand in there. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, sometimes the judges can't tell, you know, as you know from your experience with Felix Sturm. Absolutely. You, know, you, 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 can, you, can, you can sometimes, and it, it's a shame, it, it's one of the things that's so wrong about boxing. You could take three people at random out of the crowd and put them in the judges' seats, and they'd come up with a better decision than the judges. Sometimes it's incompetence, sometimes it's corruption. And it's one of the things that's ruining boxing. In other sports, there's a presumption that the officials are fair. They might make mistakes, but you assume they're trying their hardest. And that's not true of boxing. To what extent do you think that corruption... What kind of scale is it on? Because we all see bad decisions. I've done a lot of work for for IEBA, and who knows whether they'll keep going or not over the last four or five years and I've seen some decisions at ringside which were they could not be explained by incompetence they just couldn't be but I never saw anything or got any kind of whisper of anything going on if there are clandestine dealings then they're obviously pretty well protected well they're not protected I mean you see them in in, in clear view all the time with these horrible horrible decisions that come down in fights and you know there's no accountability but there's that that's the problem is there is no accountability we're in New York now the New York State Athletic Commission spends a huge amount of money each year to supposedly regulate boxing. And a lot of that money goes for no-show jobs. It goes for other political patronage. It goes for people who are politically connected to take junkets where they come down from upstate New York to Madison Square Garden and spend a couple of nights here at taxpayer expense. What it's not done is for the proper training of referees and judges You have a few very good referees and judges in New York. Somebody like Harvey Dock, I think, is one of the best referees in the country now. He's in New Jersey, referees quite frequently in New York. But you have some decisions in New York that are horrible, horrible, horrible. Now, does somebody have to go to the judge and give him or her $10,000? No, because you know what? The judge understands that I want this powerful promoter to like me because I might make $10,000 for judging this huge fight. I might make twenty dollars or $30,000 for refereeing this huge fight. So I want top rank. I want PBC. I want these people who have these big fights in New York to take me as the referee, as the judge, so I can get that trip, so I can get that money. And there's no accountability. There are no standards. You'll have a horrible decision. People will talk about it. And then you'll see the same people back in the same seats at ringside the next time around. People know who the bad referees and judges are. People know who the good referees and judges are. But nothing's done about it. It's like, it's like, it's not always as black and white as there's a brown envelope, make sure my guy wins, but it's more of a, a general influence, a swaying, that kind of thing, really. It's, uh, you know, basically the, the, the powerful guys that you mentioned there, they're, bringing, they're generating a lot of money. If you're working on that card, you're getting well paid. Uh, and there's, uh, yeah, it's more of a general influence as opposed to, right, listen, this fight, go down in the fifth. It's not, it's not quite as, uh, as black and white as that, but that doesn't mean to say that there is an influence going on. Is that a fair summary, would you say, Thomas? Yeah, you fought in Germany against Felix Sturm. What happened to you? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you won that fight. Yeah. I mean, you could have taken uh, you know, every fan at ringside and asked them, and the overwhelming majority, if they were watching the fight and being honest, would have said you won the fight. The judges in that fight were influenced. Absolutely. Now, maybe they had a bad night. You know, 
but they certainly they, they didn't judge that fight properly. And nobody seems to care. And you see the same people in the same seats over and over and over again. You know, you don't have that in other sports, and it strikes at the integrity of the sport. It is not satisfying for a fan to watch a sporting event and then see an unjust decision at the end. When you have a decision and the hometown fighter wins and the crowd boos, you can figure out that's not a very good decision. In a way, though, the fact that there is no overarching authority taking charge of boxing, and there never has been, is the problem, isn't it? Because these particular scenarios we're discussing here, really it's only the promoters probably who could solve it by saying to judges, listen, this is not what we want from you. We don't want you just to find in favour of our fighter because you fancy a trip here, there and everywhere uh, and object to their appointment in future if they felt that that was what they were doing. But, but boxing's governed by self-interest, isn't it? And that's not really in their self-interest, I suppose. Well, the, the promoter does want the bad decision in certain instances. The promoter does not want his cash cow to lose. The State Athletic Commission is charged with seeing that it doesn't happen but either the State Athletic Commission doesn't care or might not even understand. I mean, most State Athletic Commissions in the United States are run by people who are well-connected politically, who are adept at doing favors for powerful interests, but they don't understand the sport and business of boxing, and they care even less. They want their jobs. They want to be able to sit at ringside for big fights. But regulating the sport properly is down at the bottom of the list of priorities. Thomas, moving on then in terms of, I suppose, regulating sports and commissions and everything as well. um, You did did an absolutely fantastic, in-depth, investigative piece a few years back on PEDs in boxing. Uh, You know, and even as a... And enlightening as that was, and, and as scary as that was, it, it, it's it's just becoming an ever-growing problem. Where where does it end, and and how how do well? I, I can tell you how it ends. It ends with fighters being badly brain damaged or killed, and it ends with a whole generation of fighters having more cognitive issues than would normally be the case because they're being hit in the head by fighters who are using performance-enhancing drugs. Now, I've written a series of articles, as you said, most recently for uh, SweetScience.com, before that for SB Nation, for some other websites, tracking the use of performance-enhancing drugs in the sports. And there are a lot of culprits. The state athletic commissions are culpable. USADA. The United States Anti-Doping Agency is certainly culpable. And one of the articles I wrote, and I would urge your readers to go to Google, you know, type in Thomas Hauser USADA and check out some of the things I wrote. One of them was last September I wrote an article pointing out that USADA had tested more than, conducted more than 1,500 tests for performance-enhancing drugs in boxing and reported one positive test result to a governing state athletic commission. And that one report came after the result was leaked on the Internet. And what basically occurred was USADA had worked out a sweetheart deal with PBC and Al Heyman to test their fighters through the veneer of proper drug testing. But then the positive test results were being buried. And USADA subsequently admitted to several state commissions, well, you know, we had positive test results, but we adjudicated them internally. Well, USADA's not supposed to adjudicate test results. USADA's supposed to say, these are negative tests, these are positive tests, and it's up then to the governing state athletic commission to adjudicate. VADA, run by Margaret Goodman, the voluntary anti 
Doping Association does a good, honest job. And one of the, you know, one of the frustrating things about writing is you can write again and again and again and bring injustice to light, and nothing much happens. But after I put my article up last September, USADA, which had made millions of dollars from drug testing professional boxers stop drug testing professional boxers. It got too hot. So at least for the time being, we've put USADA on the sidelines. If they want to test honestly and report honestly, fine. But I haven't seen that from them. Meanwhile, you're a fighter. You know what happens to you. And you know there are fighters who perform now at a level where, realistically speaking, they couldn't do that. Fighters do not get older, bigger, stronger, and faster all at the same time in the 1930s. With more endurance in in their late 30s. It doesn't happen if you're doing it honestly. Now, are there exceptions to what you would think of as normal performance? Yeah. You know, if Rocky Marciano were fighting today, you'd say, amazing. He just keeps punching and punching. He gets stronger during a fight. He can take anything. His endurance is incredible. Well, we know Rocky Marciano didn't use PEDs because they didn't have them. Muhammad Ali. Oh, God. This guy's reflexes, his speed, not possible without PEDs. But again, Ali was before PEDs. But if you look at trends in sports and what's happening to fighters today... It's not all good, honest conditioning. They're not all exceptions to the rule. It's a general pattern, a trend, as yeah. you say. Like you say, you'll always have the individual exceptions to the rule, the special talents or the exceptional uh, durable guys. But when it's, uh, like you say, a general pattern, a trend, that, that's, when it, that's when the alarm bells are uh, ringing loudly. And the only serious testing is coming from VADA, and not enough fighters are being subjected to VADA testing, and VADA doesn't have the funds to do it often enough. So do they catch people occasionally? Yeah. But the state athletic commissions, uh, and I can't speak for every commission, but I can speak for a lot of them, particularly in New York, has shown no inclination to deal with this problem. In fact, the New York Commission, which basically takes its orders from political higher-ups has been told to back off on PED issues. Hey, 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 kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Which, which is kind of scary, Thomas, and really when you think about the light that your article shone on it, which you took upon yourself, you did the investigates, investigations and all the inquiries, but really I think what boxing needs, it needs a separate independent body that basically carries out the work you did on that article, but you know, 365 days of the year, you know, recruits information, does testing, and or, or certainly at least monitors, scrutinizes that testing. I mean, I, I don't know, I don't have the answers, but I mean, it, it's something along those lines that yeah, needs to be he, something independent. Here in the United States, that won't happen because the Association of Boxing Commissions is toothless. The state athletic commissions individually don't have the knowledge the will or the finances to do it right. At the end of the day, it's going to have to be the fighters who take control here. It's going to have to be the fighters who say, wait a minute, we're getting hit in the head harder, not just in fights, also in sparring in the gym, and we have to stop this. Um, one, one last quick one before you, 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 you speak. Andy, uh, you're trying to get in there, but... Um in, in, in the UK, Thomas, the British Boxing Board of Control, every boxer that's registered, licensed with the Board of Control 
are subject to random 365 day blood and urine testing and I don't know of any other commission in the world where that's the case and obviously it's nationwide spread and they can knock at your door at any time surely the USA I know there's different states and everything but you would imagine that every commission within the US should all kind of sign up to that that any fighter that's licensed with them should be subject to that but they, they don't the states don't want to do it because New York is afraid that if it really cracks down on PED use or to were to make Al Heyman be licensed as a promoter, which she obviously is, or were to crack down on judges or referees who shade things a certain way, then New York will lose fights to Las Vegas and California and Atlantic City. And the powers that be in New York, and by that I don't mean the people who are sitting on the commission in New York who are a joke, I mean the people, the lobbyists who go to Andrew Cuomo, the governor, and say we want this to happen and we don't want that to happen and back off on the phony you know, purses that we're filing with the commission to escape state taxes and back off on the nonsense uh, PED program you have. In New York State, which spends millions and millions of dollars a year to so-called regulate boxing, the PED program consists of telling a fighter to urinate in a cup on fight night. Do you realize how stupid you have to be to flunk that drug test? Well, that's, that's one of the other issues, isn't it? This, it's the lack of uniformity. What is in and out of competition is one of them. For example, Billy Joe Saunders, he fell foul of VADA testing, but that was different to UCAD or USADA testing with the measuring of what is and is not in and out of competition, which just seems utterly absurd. It, it was really interesting to hear you say that it'll be the fighters who have to take control because interesting comments from Julian Williams after he beat Jarrett Hurd, basically saying, whoever wants to fight me, and I have a list of fights I would like, sign up to VADA, get yourself tested, prove that you are clean, or you are not going to fight for my titles. And that, that's kind of what has to happen, I guess. And I thought that was great. We'll see if Al Heyman lets him do it. We'll see if Al Heyman lets him do it. You know, uh, Tony Harrison beat Jermel Charlo. And uh, that was a fight where both Charlos, you know, they fought on the same card at Barclays Center, and both Charlos missed tests when Vada came to uh, test them before their fights. Uh, I think one fought Matt Korobov and the, the other fought uh, Tony Harrison. Both fighters missed tests, and the New York State Athletic Commission looked the other way, let the fight happen. Tony Harrison was very upset about it. He said, well, from now on, there's going to be serious testing, but uh, I don't know that Al Heyman stood behind him on that. Now, because those were for WBC titles... They're in the WBC clean boxing program, but there's very little money there to provide for the testing. And when these two guys blew off tests, the WB said, well, we're going to find them the cost of the collection agent, but that's it. We're not going to interfere with their status with the WBC in any way. Now, what happened there was the collection agents went to the Charlos homes they were met at the door. They were told they're not here. Can we come in and look around? No. Do you know where they are? No. They tried their telephones because under the program you have to register so there's a contact number at all times. They didn't pick up their phones for the whole day. Afterwards, one of them tweeted, well, we were doing promotional work out of town. Okay. <clears throat> so if you're serious about getting to the bottom of this, you call them in under oath and you say, where were you doing your promotional work? Who were you doing it with? Where did it appear? Where are the travel receipts for all this? Didn't happen. The New York State Athletic Commission backed off. Initially, they sent a letter asking questions. Then they were told from above, back off. We don't want to interfere with a fight card at Barclays Center. They backed off, but the commission was told, well, you can test them again if you want it. So the commission says, okay, we're going to 
test you on such and such a day. In today's world, with microdosing, telling a fighter you are going to test his blood or urine for PEDs on a certain day is like telling a drug dealer we have a search warrant to come into your apartment next week. Do you really think the drugs are going to be in the apartment when you go in next week? I mean, let's get real. Either you want to deal with this problem or you don't. And right now, the powers that be in boxing don't. Do you feel that there are enough of your colleagues in in either written journalism or broadcast journalism who are as willing as you to investigate and call these things out? Because the moral high ground in boxing is a a pretty unoccupied, lonely place. The answer is is no. And, And I don't claim to be more moral than other people or holier than thou or any of that. I'm addressing a serious problem that is affecting the health, safety, and future of fighters. It's jeopardizing fighters' lives. And you read the media, you watch TV, how many people go into this in depth? Very few. And in some instances, it's because it's too complicated. They don't understand the issue. In a lot of instances, it's, I don't want to go there because I don't want to jeopardize my media credential for a fight, or I don't want to lose my party pass, or I don't want the commission to get mad at me and do this or do that. There were repercussions when you... Trust me, I know about repercussions. The first book I wrote was called Missing, about United States involvement in the coup in Chile. That didn't take on... uh, you know, the WBC. That took on the United States government and the Department of State. I was sued for $150 million. One, I didn't have $150 million, and two, it's not a pleasant experience. Well, I counterclaimed, I won the lawsuit, and I walked away with a couple of hundred thousand dollars on my counterclaim. But the point being, it's a very intimidating world out there. And there's very little serious boxing writing at major publications now, particularly in the United States. So most boxing writers don't want to go there. And if I write about it as, oh, there goes Hauser again. Yeah, because the problems keep coming up. And again, at the end of the day, it's the fighters who are suffering the most. And another thing that infuriates me about the situation, even somebody like PBC, you know, where, oh, Al Heyman really looks after his fighters. Yeah, except Al Heyman isn't looking after the B-side fighters who are getting hit in the head by the guys who are using PEDs. With someone like Al Heyman, do you think it's... I guess it's not particularly helpful that he's this kind of mysterious Fangali figure who, if he walked in here now, I wouldn't even know who he was. I well, I, I'd recognize him because I know him, but, but that's besides the point. Look, and, and Al's not the only one who's doing this. There are plenty of people using PDs who aren't affiliated with Al Heyman, and I'm sure Al would say, I don't know anything about this. You know, Bottom line is that... Uh, I could tell you, you know, where I'm not going to do it on this broadcast, but I could tell you which gyms to go to and get PEDs. I can tell you who's distributing. I can tell you where they're distributing. It's not a secret. It's out there. Any fighter who wants to use performance-enhancing drugs can do it. Now, right now, Jarrell Miller is a poster boy for illegal PED use, and that's unfair. You know, Jarrell Miller, you know, he, he happened to have gotten caught because he wasn't smart about the way he did it. He didn't have a sophisticated machine behind him saying, no, Jarrell, this is how you beat the system. But, look, Jarrell fought in New York four times in his previous six fights. I don't think he just started using PEDs for the Anthony Joshua fight, but New York never caught him. New Jersey just busted an MMA guy for using PEDs. And uh, he was brought in before the commission. They busted two guys, actually. One of them, oh, I don't know. I didn't do anything. I don't know how this got in my system. The other was honest. And he told Nick Lembo, you know, who oversees a lot of MMA in New Jersey, he said, hey, I've been doing this in New York for years, and I didn't know it was going to be a problem. You know, New York doesn't test, really. You know, they turn and look the other way. 
We just don't want to interfere with the high-profile fights. The fighters have to say, we're the ones getting hit in the head, and we're the ones that have to stop it. But if you do that, be prepared to get ostracized, and maybe it's harder for you to get fights. The scale of the problem, how large is it, would you say, in terms of, let's say tomorrow, effective widespread testing was brought in for every fighter, for every fight from, let's say, a decent kind of state level upwards. It's not going to happen, but let's just say it did. How decimated would the sport be by positive tests, would you say? My, my perception is that the problem is most serious at the elite level. Most club fighters don't have the money to use PEDs, and if they do, it's not in a very sophisticated, helpful way. I think it's prevalent at the elite level. I can't give you a statistic. I can tell you that uh, a lot of elite fighters you know, would not fare well if they were tested adequately. But then what you would hope for is that they'd all stop using so none of them would have to start using. You know, in baseball, we had this huge PED problem. And what happened was, you know, baseball players were using. And you had players like Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire, who were hugely popular in the United States, hitting all these home runs, making lots of money. So somebody like Barry Bonds looks at it and says, hey... I have to be competitive, so I'm going to start doing this. Do I think Floyd Mayweather was clean originally? Yeah. And I think, and I'm speculating now, and I want to make it clear, you know, that I, between what I know and what I'm speculating. But I'm going to speculate that Manny Pacquiao, at one point in his career, was using PEDs. Now, maybe after he found religion, he stopped. He's certainly not the fighter he once was, and I know he's older, but, you know, do I think Manny Pacquiao at one point was using performance-enhancing drugs? Absolutely. And I think, I am speculating, what happened was Floyd Mayweather looked at that and said, hey, i got to start using if I'm going to be competitive at that level. And then I think Juan, Mar Juan Manuel Marquez, again, speculating. I don't know this, but I am speculating that Juan Manuel Marquez fought Floyd Mayweather and said, wait a minute. I got to start using this step if I'm going to be at a certain level. And all of a sudden, then Juan Manuel Marquez, who has a lot of acne on his back, you know, which if you're using it a certain way, you don't even get that. You know, it's not a telltale sign that. But all of a sudden, Juan Manuel Marquez whacks out Manny Pacquiao with one punch. You know, it, guys feel they have to do it to be competitive. Now, are there fighters who stay clean? Yeah. I think Paulie Malignaggi stayed clean his whole career. I think Matthew Macklin stayed clear his whole career. But it put you guys at a serious disadvantage. I think it, you're bang on nail on the head there, Thomas. I think what, it's a bit like in the cycling when uh, it all came out with Lance Armstrong and they said, well, yeah, but the 15 behind him were probably all also using and it's a, it's a case of you know, some of the guys will say, look, do you want to start five miles behind? Because if you're not taking PEDs, that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was it. He wouldn't, when he was asked, I think it was on that show with Oprah Winfrey, which was pretty excruciating. But when he was asked, you know, would you, do you regret it? Or would you do it again? I think was the question. And his, and his reply was, as long as I knew that everybody else wasn't doing it, then I wouldn't do it. But I knew for a fact that everybody else was doing it. So he felt that he didn't really have any any choice in the matter. And like you say, until... I don't know. It's, it's a bit bit depressing in a way because it is difficult to see. It is difficult to see with the way boxing is run how this situation improves particularly. So let's move on to uh, a slightly different subject and we had a brief chat about this earlier on the heavyweight axis at the moment with these top three fighters who currently are not fighting each other I don't think anything is going to have changed in the couple of weeks before between recording this and us and us putting it out frustration is growing obviously Deontay Wilder will fight Luis Ortiz we expected that I don't think anybody really thought that one of those big fights was going to get made before the end of the year you've been covering boxing for a long time 
and there is this kind of perception that back in the old days the best fought the best all the time there were fewer titles and everything was better is the situation we've got on our hands at the minute is this any worse any better or just the same it's worse you can over romanticize about the past you know people generally tend to think things were best when they were young you know about 12 to 15 16 years old when sports were all that mattered and every sports hero was a god yeah but let's face it boxing first boxing now has a lot more competition from other sports than it did 50 years ago and boxing is not delivering first you don't have recognizable champions the heavyweight championship of the world was the most coveted title in sports for a hundred years. We're sitting now at a restaurant one block from Madison Square Garden. We could ask every person sitting in this restaurant now, who's the heavyweight champion of the world? The answer you're going to get most is, well, I don't think it's Mike Tyson anymore. Maybe one other person in this whole restaurant will say, well, Anthony Joshua has the WBA and IBF and WBO belts, and Deontay Wilder is WBC, and Tyson Fury is the lineal champion. Stop. We don't have recognizable champions anymore. That's nonsense. We also don't have the best fighting the best. You have a huge amount of money coming into the system now. And one of the most disheartening things about that is instead of the money being used to make the good fights, it's being used to keep the good fights from happening. You know, they're telling Tyson Fury, you don't have to fight Deontay Wilder or Anthony Joshua to make a ton of money. We're going to pay you a fortune to fight Tom Schwartz? Stop. You know, they're going to Deontay Wilder and saying, don't make that deal with the zone to fight Anthony Joshua twice. You know, here, make a deal with us. We'll put you in against an older, more tired Luis Ortiz. And then you can fight Adam Kuznacki, who's a very courageous, nice young man who, you know, is just going to be a punching bag. I mean, Adam's not making it out of the second round in that fight. And I like Adam. That's not a knock on Adam. He fights as well as he can. But you know, the, the, everybody understands that Fury, Wilder, and Joshua should fight each other. And if one guy goes 2-0, and oh, then he's the heavyweight champion of the world. And if it's 1-1-1, one, 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 then you do it again. That's not rocket science. Everybody knows Errol Spence and Terence Crawford should fight each other. But it's not happening. The money is being used to keep the big fights from happening. And... You know, then you have uh, you know, Errol Spence fighting Mikey Garcia, a guy two weight classes below him, to try to get some name recognition. And now that uh, Sean Porter looks like he's getting old and tired and looked pretty bad against Ugas, okay, maybe Errol will fight him next. I mean, echoing what you said, I suppose, Thomas, with the money that's come into boxing, and it's certainly it's been a, a massive sort of increase in picks even in the last few years since I was boxing uh, the streaming apps are coming in you've got some big big money people coming in you know, obviously the PBC had all that hedge fund money um, huge money coming in and you'd like to you would like to think when I mean, we talked about PEDs that there could be a certain percentage cast aside to set up a independent body that regulated and, and scrutinised that but without going back into all that again and, and secondly you'd like to think that there's enough money there on the table that whatever the issues are there that there's enough to go around and, and, and that these can happen and is it is it so is it more than just money is it about control is it Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Control is about money. There's enough money on the table to go around, but nobody wants to share it. 
And also, what means money for one person is different for another. ESPN doesn't care about boxing. You can go to the ESPN website now, and this is also true of ESPN+. And up top, it says Major League Baseball, NBA Basketball, National League Football. You get over to Other, and then you scroll down under Other, and the 12th sport listed is boxing. It's after cricket. Here in the United States, boxing is listed after cricket. I, I find that well, absolutely well, incredible. Go to the website. you got a smartphone. Yeah, check it out. I mean, it, but, but yeah, what ESPN is interested in is building a subscriber base for ESPN Plus, and boxing will bring in some subscribers. Not as many as professional wrestling, not as many as UFC, because UFC gives fans what they want, wrestling gives fans what they want. But for ESPN, the dollar signs are attached to you know, building this new subscription base. For DAZN, same thing. Uh, Fox is doing whatever it's doing. Showtime, which I would speculate will be out of the business in three years, you know, is doing what it's doing. But, but you're not seeing big fights. You're not seeing the fights that you want. And it's all about people, you know, where are their financial interests? Now, would ESPN be well served by putting on good fights? Yeah, but Top Rank is better served by protecting its name fighters. And ESPN, by the way, I don't think wants to see you know its flagship fighters right now, Lomachenko and Crawford, knocked off. But again, yeah, I think Terence Crawford genuinely wants to fight Errol Spence. And I think at this point, Aram wouldn't mind Terrence Crawford fighting Errol Spence. I'm not so sure Errol wants that fight. And, I mean, that's probably outside of the heavyweight division or, or even alongside the heavyweight division, one of the, the, the best fights in boxing. Certainly the one I'd love to see, Errol Spence and uh, Terrence Crawford. But in terms of time scale, how long do you think we have to wait for that fight? Do you think Al Heyman just wants to keep Errol Spence over on PBC, Showtime, Fox, and doesn't want I don't, to... I don't think Errol Spence fights Terence Crawford. And I think what happens is that he fights a bunch of PBC guys, and then eventually he outgrows the division. And all of a sudden now Errol Spence is at 154 pounds, and Terence Crawford is small. Terence Crawford, you know, fought at 140 for a long time. He has no trouble making 47. So at that point, either Terence Crawford has to make a huge competitive sacrifice by fighting above and beyond his natural weight class, or the fight doesn't happen. And it's a shame because you could have Crawford Spence now, and it really would have the excitement for boxing fans of Leonard Hearns. Now, would it be as big a fight? No. But the winner would, uh, the winner of Crawford Spence would legitimately be able to clay claim to, you know, the mantle of Floyd Mayweather, if you want to call it that, the number one pound for pound fighter, and the loser would probably come out more marketable as well. And if it was a great fight, which most people think it would be, they could do it again. Yeah, I, I agree, Thomas. I think when you've got when you're one of the best fighters in the world and you're fighting another one of the best fighters in the world, I, I don't think your stock goes down. You've stepped up to the plate. You've you've laid it on the line. You've you've be, you've dared to be great. You, you know, I mean, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, uh, Joe Frazier, they all fought, won, lost, were trilogies, rematches. You know, Hagler, Hearns, Leonard, Duran. You know, it, that that was what what made it such a great era, the best fighting the best. Yeah. Guys lose. Sugar Ray Leonard is widely regarded as the best fighter of the past 50 years. You can quibble, but you know, Ray's going to be on everybody's short list. Ray lost to Roberto Duran. Then he took what he had learned in losing to Duran, came back, beat Duran. Then when he took what he had learned in the two Duran fights, used it to beat Tommy Hearns. Then he took what he learned beating Tommy Hearns and used it to beat Marvin Hagler. And before he fought any of those guys, he fought Wilfred Benitez. Great fights make great 
fighters, not just in terms of how the public reacts, but that's how fighters learn to be great. You learn to walk through the fire by walking through the fire, and nobody holds it against Ray Leonard that he lost to Roberto Duran early on. Nobody says, oh, well, he had that L on his record. Ray was a great, great fighter, and he went in tough. Look at Ali. You know. So do you think the myth then that now the, Z, the O uh, doesn't matter as much, but that it, so it does matter as much from a promotional marketing point of view, having an undefeated record is still a, a, a big tool, and you know, it, that's it, why people are scared to go in in 50-50 fights? It, it, it matter. Well, first, there are some fighters out there that just don't want to go in tough. You know, I, I ask, look, you're a fighter. I assume, yeah, there's a wonderful challenge to going in tough. Well, it can't be a lot of fun to get beaten up. You know, you, you go in tough, the odds are longer that you're going to get physically hurt. You know, you're going to get punched in the face, punched in the body. You've been very tough. You've been in very tough, Matthew. You know what it's like to go in tough, and yeah, it hurts physically, emotionally. If you win, it's a huge high, but it hurts. You were a fighter at heart. You did it. There are a lot of guys that don't want to do it. I understand that. I'm not a fighter. You know, I couldn't be a fighter. But, you know, there are a lot of guys who don't want to go in tough. But if you want to be great, instead of putting it in your contract, oh, we're going to say this is a fight for the ages. I mean, you're telling me that Vassal Lomachenko, and Lomachenko is a guy who I think really wants to go in tough. But, you know, all that hype, Lomachenko against Guillermo Rigondeau was going to be a fight for the ages, two two-time gold medal winners, undefeated fighters, stop. Anybody with a brain knew going in that that was just a mismatch. You know, stop, stop, stop. You know, Lomachenko, Mikey Garcia would be a wonderful fight. And Mikey might be a little too big for him. You know, but, you know, great fight. And I think Lomachenko would do it because I think Lomachenko, Terrence Crawford is another one. I think they're two guys who really want to go in tough. I don't know that Bob Arum always wants to put them in tough, but I think... They have a fighting spirit. A fighting spirit is no longer prerequisite to being great in boxing. But when we look at fighters and we talk about legendary fighters from the past, whether it's Joe Lewis, Jack Dempsey, Ray Robinson, we talk about the fights that were tough. We talk about Ali Frazier, Ali Foreman. You know, we don't talk about Ali against Carl Mildenberger. You know, it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we last night we did, we we had a, a chat with Jamie Moore, a guy who beat me in 2006, knocked me out in the tenth round of what was voted at the time fight of the decade, and it was probably one of the best in the UK, and probably one of the best. Well, I'd say it's probably the best domestic fight of the last of, the, of you know the last 25 years, I'd and say certainly so. one. I'd say so. But you're Ever. impartial. <laughs> but yeah, but but I, I, it was an unbelievable. Fight. It was a great fight. fight. I've fight. seen it. I've seen it. It and, was a great fight. But, but at that time, you know, I knew Jamie Moore was a still maybe still improving at his peak. I was still kind of a prospect, I suppose, going on to bigger and better things. So it was, uh, or looking to go on to bigger and better things. So. But I was prepared to lay it on the line. I was prepared to risk because I believed in myself and it didn't work out for me. I lost the fight. But all the things I achieved still came after that. And I think that's, you know, it's kind of echoing what you say. These, these, it's the great fights that not only make you remember, but they make you, they're the things that develop you. They're the things that make you learn to walk through the fire. And you only do that by doing it. Yeah, fighting Roberto Duran and Tommy Hearns and Wilfredo Benitez made Ray Leonard a better fighter. Those things prepared him for the challenge of Marvin Hagler. Sugar Ray Robinson fought Jake LaMotta six times. Jake LaMotta was never a walk in the park, but those fights made Ray Robinson a better fighter. He was pretty good to start with, but they made him even better. To what extent do you think, and we both work in broadcasting obviously, but to what extent do you think that TV is to blame in the preservation of the, of the O? Because I remember reading a book about uh, the advent of television coverage in America and before TV, the average number of fights you needed to get a crack at the title, and there was only one title at that point, was 70. 
um, 10 years into TV, it was down to 37. And the reason they gave for that was that the undefeated record became much, much more of a thing once television started to get involved in boxing. And, and broadcasting does seem to be a bit out of control now with the number yeah, of platforms but, there are. Yeah, TV, I think, today, more than the undefeated record, is drawn to the world championship label. You know, oh, this is, I mean, one of the dumbest things that the networks are doing today, and they've done a lot of dumb things because many of the people there don't know the sport and business of boxing, is, you know, they, their, their idea of quality control in a contract is to say, well, we'll okay the fight if it's for a world championship. And let's face it, I mean, you know, Matthew, you could come back and in six months you could fight for a world championship again. You could be ranked in a sanctioning body and fight again for a championship. You know, it just, if the networks want to make a difference in this sport, the first thing they could do is disown ESPN, Fox, and Showtime here in the United States could all say, we are not going to televise main event fighters who are not in a year-round VADA drug program. That would go a long, long way to cleaning up the sport because that's where the money's coming from these days. But they won't because they'll be afraid that if one of them does, then some of the named fighters will simply go to another network. And by the way, one of the dumbest things the networks have done in, you know, in this whole race to sign up content is you make output deals with a promoter. And I don't care if that promoter is Top Rank, PBC, Golden Boy, Matchroom, whoever it is. When you give somebody an output deal, you have given away your primary bargaining chip which is the date. You know, once a promoter has the date, they don't have to give you as much because they know the date is theirs. So they might say, okay, you know, we have the date and uh, you know, we think it would be a good idea to have Deontay Wilder fight Tom Hauser. And then the network executive says, well, you know, we don't really think Hauser's a credible opponent. We're not going to okay that. And they say, okay, well, we'll give you Deontay Wilder against Adam Kuznacki. And now the network executive is thrilled. He's done his job. You know, he got Hauser off the card. Yeah. But what does he wind up with? And by the way, that's not a knock at Adam. Because as I said before, I like Adam. I think he's an entertaining fighter. There are a lot of guys I would like to see Adam fight in a good competitive fight. Deontay Wilder isn't one of them. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend, Rip, and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. It's so interesting to hear you talk about all of this, Thomas, and it ties back in with something that me and Matt talk about quite a lot. Obviously, he was a fighter, I wasn't, but we both would say that we're we're addicts when it comes to boxing, and I read your book, A Beautiful Sickness, and it's... It is that. It, you, you become obsessed with this sport because it just it gets into your bones because it is so interesting but so incredibly frustrating. But you're still, I mean, you're still as passionate about it now as, as, as you always were by the look of it and you're not in any danger of abandoning it. I don't know that I am as passionate about it as I once was. I've gotten tired of all the nonsense and the self-destructive qualities. I still get passionate about injustice. I still get passionate about issues like PEDs. 
because I see fighters getting hurt needlessly. I get passionate about the fact that fighters are screwed regularly, financially, while you know, a s- small number of fighters get rich and a lot of suits get rich. You know. But I'd have to say in all honesty that I don't have the same enthusiasm for boxing that I once did. I still love writing about it. I still like sitting down, talking with people like you and Matthew. I said, I think earlier in this interview, that some of the best people I've ever met in my life are in boxing. Many of the worst people I've ever met in my life are in boxing. But it's never boring. I mean, how can it not be fun to sit and talk with Don King, even though Don isn't what he once was? You know, I mean, it's... But but the, the sport has become so much about hype. It used to be that at the end of the day, with all the promotion and everything else, boxing was about what happened in the ring. Boxing was about the fights. And that could be great fighters like Ali and Frazier against each other, or it could be two four-round club fighters against each other in a good competitive fight. But that's all lost now. You go to the fights now, and the crowd doesn't even get there until half an hour before the main event. There are eight undercard fights. They don't watch most of them. Who wants to see somebody with a 17-0 and record beat up a guy who's 4-8? and you know, I would much rather see two guys who are 4-8 and eight fight each other. But that's not what you have. The sport, it's killing itself. And it's no longer about building a great sport. It's about everybody making their small or big cash grab without any sense of a common hold. You know, do the people who run the National Football League you know, do it for money? Absolutely. You know, what... Roger Goodell you know, makes you know, tens of millions of dollars you know, in salary. The owners are you know, billionaires in some instances. They're doing it for the money, as are the players, but everybody understands that there's a sense of the common good, that we're all in this together. A rising tide lifts all boats. The Golden State Warriors are playing the Toronto Raptors in the playoffs now. The other owners aren't sitting around saying, ah, it's going to be a terrible series. Everybody knows that Houston's better than either team. Or, you know, I hear there's going to be a tornado that's going to tear the roof off the building. People better say, I mean, that's what boxing promoters, managers, you know. TV network executives do to each other. You know, boxing cannibalizes its own. I think that's that's 100% accurate. You think of the, the old story, uh, fable of the, the frog and the, the scorpion, and it's, it's, it's just that, isn't it? It's in their nature. They can't help it. You, you speak to them, and I think sometimes people might come into any industry with noble intentions, then they realize that if they don't just do what everybody else does, then they're not going to survive and it's it's difficult to see it changing particularly it's hard the the closest boxing has come to being great in recent decades has been with what hbo did for quite a period of time hbo for a while served as the de facto commissioner of boxing with the money they had and it was a huge amount of money and the lack of credible competition HBO could go to Errol Spence and Terence Crawford and say, okay, you know, we're working this out. You'll fight on the same card against not particularly threatening opponents. The next fight, you're fighting each other. And you look at the great fights that happened. We talked about it a little earlier. Ray Leonard, Tommy Hearns, Marvin Hagler, Roberto Duran. Those guys went in tough against each other. They were fighters, and they also understood in that era you got your recognition by being a great fighter. Roberto Duran was probably the greatest lightweight who ever lived. If he wasn't the greatest, he's certainly on the short list. 
he went from 135 pounds right to 47 to challenge Ray Leonard, and then he went up to 160 to fight Marvin Hagler? I mean, this is a tough SOB. You know, this is a tough guy. You know, and did he bite off some more than he could chew sometimes? Yeah, you look at the Roberto Duran against Tommy Hearns. That was not a good night for Roberto. But he was willing to go in tough. And you became great by going in tough. You became respected by going in tough. That's the part of... That, look, boxing and sports are part of a larger denigration of our whole political system. But it's what's happening... And for those of us who really care about boxing, it's sad. I think you used the word respect there, and I think the way fighters now are earning more money, but I don't know that they have the same respect that those fighters, like you say, that went in tough and that lost fights and came back and dared to be great and risked it all. And, you know, sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. But I think the respect that those guys have. You know, they may not have the money that the modern-day ones that are being protected are, but they have that respect. They certainly don't have the respect or the recognition. Anthony Joshua could walk by Madison Square Garden this afternoon, and more people would think that he's a basketball player than a professional fighter. Deontay Wilder could walk into Times Square this afternoon and start shouting, Bomb Squad! And more people would call Homeland Security than recognize him as a heavyweight fighter. I'd say that's absolutely accurate. And, and once it was the time where everybody knew who the heavyweight champion of the world was, where somebody said if Muhammad Ali had been dropped out of a plane anywhere in the world, whoever found him would have recognized him and immediately started to smile. It's just not, it's not the situation anymore. We've already kept you longer than we said we would, and you've got some food to eat there. So I just want one more question for you. Of all the fighters that you've covered throughout your career, who has been your favorite to deal with or write about? Doesn't necessarily have to be the finest fighter. Who's been the most intriguing character, would you say? Well, it would have to be Ali. I mean, I, I was not writing boxing when Ali was fighting, but I was privileged to be his biographer. I was privileged to spend 10 years of my life with him. There was a point in time where I had a room in his house where I'd go out for a week at a time when we were working on the book. And uh, uh, as a fighter, as a person, yeah, on so many different levels, Muhammad Ali has to be the most memorable and enjoyable experience of my life. But there are so many fighters who have meant so much to me. I mean, I look over at the UK... Lennox Lewis was a man of incredible dignity and grace and, and an awfully good fighter. John Duddy, who never scaled the heights, is just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful guy. I never got to know Joe Calzaghe well, but what I knew I liked. You have people like Barry McGuigan, who always carried the banner high. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to get to know Matthew, you know. Uh, and there are just so many good People, you know, sometimes it's very sad. Jermaine Taylor was one of my favorite people. He was a nice, nice young man and a very good fighter. He fought Bernard Hopkins even twice when Bernard was at the top of his game. And to see what has happened to Jermaine and to see the way boxing picked over his carcass and the cognitive issues he has now is heartbreaking for me. I also have to go back to the, the first boxing writing I ever did was about Billy Costello. I wrote a book about the sport and business One of, my of favorites, boxing. The, the Black Lights. Called The Black Lights. Absolutely tremendous and book. If anybody hasn't read it, you yeah, must read it. That, that, that was based around, that told the story of the sport and business of boxing through Billy Costello, who was a 140-pound WBC champion at one point in time. And I said to Billy once, and I meant it, I said to him, you'll always be my champion. Billy was the first, and, and Billy was a wonderful person. He died from, uh, you know, he had lung cancer. He wasn't a smoker, but he died from lung cancer. And, and that was, a, uh, that was un life is not always fair, and that was unfair. Well, Thomas, it's been a... It's been a huge pleasure talking to you. We, we had this earmarked. When Matt suggested your name to me a week or so ago, I was, I was so keen immediately because 
It's always really interesting to hear from someone who's observed boxing at such close quarters for such a long time and who's never been afraid to, to criticise and to point the finger and, and to back it up because I just think journalism's in a bit of a strange place at the moment. In the last two or three years, facts and expertise and experience almost seem to be being rejected kind of across the board, but there's no real substitute for them. It's well, and, and it's up to you two guys to help keep the faith. Well, we'll do our very best we'll to, to live up to your, to your standards. Thomas, thanks very much. We'll let you get to your food. Finally, it arrived about an hour ago. Uh, so that wraps it up for Macklin's take for this one and we will be back with more soon again as always give us a rate on iTunes if you can remember to do that it just makes it easier for people to find and keep tuning in because we'll be back with another episode before too long Sports Social Podcast Network Hello it is Ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.